people have been investing in gold for thousands of years other asset classes have emerged ownership structures have evolved but the notion of holding physical gold as a store of wealth has endured the test of time what is it about this commodity that still appeals to investors today and how can we model its price behavior all of this and more in this episode Welcome to the second episode of the Commodity Exchange, a podcast where we bring to you insights from the world of commodities. Whether you're an investor or just want to learn more about the topic, this podcast is for you. I'm Nitesh Shah, I'm the head of commodities and macroeconomic research at here at Wisdom Tree. And I'm Mubeen Tahir, director of macroeconomics research and tactical solutions at Wisdom Tree. Before we begin, I do need to state the following to clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast research nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener please remember past performance is no indication of future results so as always we will start with a market recap what's been happening in the world of commodities some key highlights and in this episode i will start by highlighting three commodities which had some interesting developments particularly in the month of april so let's talk about those three commodities starting first with carbon and when i say carbon i'm referring to european union carbon emission allowances abbreviated as euas and this essentially is the price that you have to pay if you emit carbon dioxide if you are a regulated entity in europe now on the 18th of april of uh, this year 2023 the european parliament approved key components of the fit for 55 legislative package now the fit for 55 package is designed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels hence the name fit for 55 now for the last 2 years or so uh there have been very active negotiations going on between the european union parliament the european council and the european commission and we are now getting to a stage where the legislative package is close to becoming law now the entire aim of this pursuit is to make it more punitive to emit uh, greenhouse gases and the goal is to include more entities into the regulation tighten loopholes and limit the supply of allowances so in the last 2 years as we've had developments in this front uh, the price of uh, european union allowances has been uh, trending upwards generally in anticipation of uh, the developments becoming part of law so progress on this front is certainly a positive sign that was commodity number 1 let's now move to commodity number 2 and that is tin The price of tin uh, recently reacted to news emerging from potential supply disruption in Myanmar. Now Myanmar is the third largest producer of tin worldwide 
And recently, due to political reasons, there is news emerging that there could be potential supply disruption in the coming months. Now, tin is a metal that is used in soldering, and soldering is a process which binds uh, different uh, metals together. Very important, uh, particularly in the energy transition, as more metals become relevant for, for all sorts of green applications, electronics, and so forth. And China is heavily reliant on Myanmar for its tin imports. So developments of uh, potential supply disruption are very, very important in, uh, in the price uh, movements of tin. In recent times, uh, uh, China has been looking to reduce its dependence on Myanmar, uh, but it still remains heavily dependent on the country. Also interesting uh, to note that uh, in recent years, tin has exhibited large price fluctuations compared to other industrial metals, with its rally in 2021-2022 outpacing several other industrial metals, but that was followed by an equally sharp pullback uh, in subsequent months. So that was commodity number two. And commodity number three, which had interesting uh, developments uh, in the month of April, let's talk about sugar. An agricultural commodity, uh, which uh, actually soared uh, in in April and has been soaring since the start of this year, um, and the reason for this was that uh, lower than expected supplies from India and Thailand, uh, India being the second largest supplier of uh, sugar worldwide, and Thailand being the third largest supplier of sugar worldwide, so lower than expected supply from these two countries. Uh, is is providing tailwind to sugar prices. And at the end of April of this year, sugar prices hit their highest level in almost uh, 12 years. And the rally really emphasizes how unique each commodity's story of demand and supply really is. So with that, uh, that wraps up our market recap. And we can now move towards uh, the main segment, the main topic of uh, this podcast, investing in gold. So I want to start, uh, Nitesh, by uh, just uh, mentioning a quote uh, before we dive into the discussion. I saw this on a website, and the it's, it's the website of Express Gold Refining, and I found this quote very interesting. It said, wars have been fought over gold, love has been expressed with gold, and gold has changed the landscape of civilizations and the world. I found out that uh, very interesting how uh, those angles were being uh, highlighted. But of course, the idea of physical gold as a store of wealth, um, even a symbol of power, has been around for thousands of years. Uh, by most accounts, ancient Egyptians were the first to smelt gold in the year 3600 BC. And needless to say, a lot has changed since then in the world of finance and, and investing. But the idea of investing in physical gold has uh, endured the test of time. But the notion uh, of, uh, of investing in gold is interesting to investors today. So we want to start there, Nitesh, and we want to uh, discuss really the basics of why investors would be interested in investing in gold. So talk us uh, through the case for investing in gold as an asset class. 
So, Mabin, I, I totally agree with you. Gold is a very versatile asset, and not only is it versatile, but um, it it has these behavioral characteristics that no other asset class really has, and that's what makes it a perfect diversifier for any portfolio. Um, and you know, it, with with sort of the basics of uh, you know uh, diversification theory, uh, the only free lunch you get in in, in any uh, in any investment is diversification, and the less correlated an asset is with others, the better it is in in that regard. So gold does several things. Um, it, it acts as a really nice um, hedge against inflation. Um, when inflation is uh, really strong, as we've seen in past decades, uh, notably uh, in the late 1970s and early 80s, uh, gold is one of those assets that really performs really strongly in those environments. So a hedge against inflation. Um, it also acts as a very defensive asset as well. Um, when people are worried about um, uh, financial um, dislocations, uh, when people are worried about um, economic stress points, when the, the economy is weakening, we tend to find gold prices rise. In that way, it competes a lot with, say, um, uh, fixed income uh, assets like uh, treasuries or you know government uh, bonds. So defensiveness is also another trait. So gold is one of these assets that does well in both extremes. You know when the economy is do is really strong, which often generates a lot of inflation, gold prices do well. And when the economy is doing badly, and um, you're seeing uh, you know recession risk financial market risk become elevated, uh, gold also does well then. Um, so both at both extremes, gold does, does, does uh, perform strongly. Also, it acts as a geopolitical hedge as well. Um, when we, when a lot of investors are worried about uh, war risks, are worried about um, uh, the you know implosions of various countries, you tend to find gold prices rise. Um, geopolitical risks tend to move gold prices very temporarily. We saw that last year uh, with the outbreak of the Ukraine war. Uh, we saw gold prices rise. It didn't last forever. You know, gold prices came off after a while, but for, for temporarily, it acts as a nice edge uh, for those kinds of risks. So gold um, is is quite versatile, but it also is, um, it, it behaves very differently. And that's why it makes a great um, uh, diversifier for a portfolio. Now, I guess, one of the other questions is, you know, worth considering is how to invest in gold. Um, because the you know gold, while you know you can just think about the metal in of itself. Yes, you can buy a metal and store it physically, keep it in your own property or in a vault. Um, that's one way of doing things. But there are other ways of um, getting gold exposure. Um, one way uh, is through uh, futures markets. So getting uh you know contract exposure to uh to gold uh where the deliverable is uh is 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 you know, physical gold that's another way of getting price exposure to gold um and in the physical market um there are many different ways of accessing physical i mean you could even go down you know in, in the retail market you can even uh buy very small uh, gold bars or even pieces of jewelry can be thought of very broadly as an investment. 
but for most people who are um, trying to access gold in a cost effective way um, when investing physically it means the 400 ounce bars now that is um, quite an expensive endeavor for most people um, and if they want to access um, gold bars uh, or get exposure to gold prices in, in other ways um, there are exchange traded products also based on the physical um, typically investing in physical gold uh, tends to be much more cost effective than uh, investing in gold futures um, the, one of the issues with investing in gold in, in futures markets is that most futures markets um, involve some sort of contango on the on the futures curve um, and what I mean by that is that the price of a gold um, co uh, contract for delivery in a couple of months time tends to be higher than the price of gold today and with the price with the with the passage of time the uh, contract for delivery in two months time becomes a contract for delivery in one month's time and then soon enough it will become this the spot price and if the curve shape doesn't change at all uh, what you find is that the price of the uh, of the contract that was originally two months out will become converged to the spot price today that means you're getting uh, a drag on price performance that can tangle in, in, in markets is something that's built in and it's reflective of uh, the storage costs of, uh, of gold plus um, uh, foregone interest rates um, and few other risk factors. Um, investing in, in gold physically, even incorporating the vaulting costs and insurance costs typically tends to be lower than uh, that tends to be more uh, better than uh, investing in the future once you incorporate that, that roll drag. Natesh, in, in the world of uh, equities, there are well-established uh, valuation models. Uh, now people can disagree with uh, what inputs uh, you put into those models and what you get out of those models. But people tend to agree on the tools that uh, that get used in in valuing uh, those types of uh, conventional uh, asset classes like uh, equities and and bonds. But with the with commodities, uh, it isn't always uh, as uh, uh, straightforward. Uh, so having a model to explain the price behavior of a commodity is quite unique and it's quite special. But you have built a model that helps explain uh, the behavior of gold. So tell us about it. Yeah, you're quite right. Um, gold um, doesn't really behave like most of the asset classes. Um, and uh, therefore, modeling its behavior is, um, you know, it's a bit of a challenge. Um, and gold isn't a yielding asset, so you can't use things like discounted cash flows um, and you know from our analysis the movement of the physical supply and demand doesn't have a huge bearing on price either unlike most of the commodities so looking at gold understanding its price behavior and uh, trying to provide something useful for investors um, and the other interested parties to uh, understand gold um, is, you know, is, is quite a, uh, you know, is quite a challenge, and it's a challenge that we undertook 
uh, in 2015, so close to um, eight years ago, uh, we put together uh, a model. And the idea here was that there are many, many things that people talk about that influence gold prices. Um, and if we were to uh, believe that every single one of them uh, were important, um, then we'd be, you know, changing our gold price forecasts every two minutes because something else is new is happening. You know, people talk about, you know, great monsoons in uh, countries like India, which is a large farming-based uh, country. Um, and you know, when you have a monsoon in such a country, that means your crop yields will be better, and then farmers have more money to spend on gold, and therefore gold prices should go up. I mean, you'd you'd see sort of these sort of convoluted. Um, explanations um and uh you know you'd, you'd be forever chasing a new gold price every every time something moves um so what we did was to get as many time series of data that um of things that people talk about that move gold prices and put them into our model um, and we could condition for pretty much everything there so um when you've got and we started in the, the exercise with 20 with somewhere between 20 and 30 variables um when you're putting the, all those variables into a model at the same time, only the statistically most significant will survive. And in doing so, uh, we ended up with a very parsimonious model with just four major variables that drive gold prices. And they include um, the uh, US dollar. So as dollar appreciates, that tends to be bad for gold prices in dollar terms. Um, inflation is another important variable for gold, as we've just uh, discussed earlier on. As inflation rises, that tends to be gold price positive. Um, also, we talked a little bit earlier on about gold being, um, you know, an alternative to other defensive assets like uh, uh, U.S. Treasuries, and so U.S. Treasuries actually end up being a, a strong influencing. Uh, for gold prices. So as treasury yields rise, as in bond prices fall, uh, we tend to find gold, gold prices fall as well. And the very last thing that's in our model is um, speculative positioning in gold futures. And we use that as a measurement for investor sentiment towards gold. And sentiment tends to be uh, play, it tends to play a very important role in in gold price behavior, and that tends to capture some of those geopolitical risks or other risks that that that, that we uh, we discussed earlier on. So, with those four variables in mind, we can capture almost sixty five percent of gold price uh, movement, uh, which is very strong. And the model um, is quite uh, effective. I mean. Um, it's hard to show a chart here on our podcast, but um, you know, we encourage you to look at our website. We have, um, if you look at uh, the, the outcomes of our model, um, turning points um, tend to be well captured by our model, and so does a direction uh, of, uh, of of gold prices by by our model. Uh, so we've been running this, you know, for close to, as I said, uh, eight years now, and we find it a very effective tool in describing gold prices historic behavior um, but then we can also use it as a tool for projecting forward um, the model in of itself doesn't project forward uh, but what we can do is create a gold price that's consistent with our macroeconomic view of the world given the context of you know the, the variables that go in are mainly sort of macroeconomic by nature um, so 
that's some of the ways in which we use this model. But you know, maybe before thinking about you know forecasts, it's it's good to um, reflect a little bit on the uh, short term past, um, and uh, we can use this model just to explain you know where we've gone through in gold prices recently. Um, and when I say recently, let's take the last few years. Um, we saw in, in with the outbreak of the pandemic in. Uh, 2020 gold prices got quite a substantial lift that's a period of a lot of uncertainty once again people flock towards gold in times of uncertainty um we hit peak gold price around um august of uh, 2020 in nominal terms when gold prices hit uh two thousand sixty dollars uh, per ounce at around that time um and during that time we had a period of um, you know, monetary largesse. Um, central banks were expanding uh, monetary policy, pumping lots of liquidity into the market. Um, and one of the other features of gold is it, it is almost like a pseudo currency. A lot of people look at gold as an alternative to uh, fiat currencies like the dollar, euro, yen, uh, and other currencies that are managed by central banks. If those other alternative currencies, fiat currencies, are um, being, you know, debased by the central banks, by the, their, their, their central banks expanding their monetary supply, people often look at gold as the alternative where the monetary supply can't be expanded at will and therefore go into that. So that's why 2020 was a very strong year for gold prices. Um, 2021 was also qu quite strong, but then we started to see um gold prices slide um especially in, in 2022 um and that came on the back of uh the federal reserve and other central banks was withdrawing a lot of that uh quantitative easing that they put into the market with quantitative tightening uh tightening of their balance sheets would mean less monetary debasing all the fears that were in place in, in prior years were being taken away and uh, we saw bond yields uh rise substantially uh, so we saw a massive bond sell-off, and we saw the dollar appreciate extremely strongly. At the same time, we had we were living in a year of inflation being at multi-decade highs, um, and some people looked at gold and said, "Well, why isn't gold doing more uh, in this environment of extremely high inflation?" It's the other things that matter uh, at that point. Well, everything matters, uh, but yeah, they all need to be taken in combination. And therefore, uh, that bond sell-off and uh, extremely strong dollar uh, acted as headwinds against the tailwinds of uh, high inflation. That was 2022. Um, but coming into 2023, um, the market's looking uh, a lot more uh, optimistically at um, central banks making that pivot once again towards loosening interest rates. And therefore, uh, the dollar um, has stopped appreciating, um, like we saw in 2022. Uh, the the bond markets have largely settled as well. And once again, people are worried about other risks resurfacing. We had a, a banking, um, a, a lot of stress in the banking sector, uh, the collapse of SVP Bank, and also uh, Credit Suisse being uh, bought out by uh, UPS. Uh, when people are worried about these kinds of risks, uh, once again, gold becomes a place to go to. So a couple of the things that our model has helped us explain uh, in, in the real world.
Nitesh, it's interesting uh, that monsoon rains in India didn't uh, make the cut in your final model, but uh, crucially, not on the basis of uh, your personal opinion, but uh, lack of statistical significance. So uh, thanks for uh, explaining the context there. Now, back in the day, uh, I, from my investment consulting uh, days, uh, Nitesh, I had a colleague who had this uh, pet phrase, and it was a tongue-in-cheek expression and used to say it's only a model. Uh, when we used to uh, work with things like stochastic models and whatnot. Um, yes, it's uh, only a model and nobody has a crystal ball uh, for explaining the future. But of course, uh, models are immensely useful in creating a framework uh, to ultimately facilitate decision making. And this is particularly true if you can uh, illustrate the model with forward-looking scenarios. So uh, you mentioned uh, how you look forward and use the model to uh, to look forward uh, for gold prices so what scenarios do you have and how does gold behave in each of those scenarios yeah Mobina, i fully agree with you a model is only as good as the inputs you can put into it and um, that's what makes uh gold forecasting very difficult because i need a for a good forecast on inflation i need a good forecast on treasury yields i need a good forecast on the dollar and then you know investor sentiment i mean forecasting investor sentiment is a, is a is a tough uh job but um you know once again the model is there um to make a gold price that's consistent with our view of the world elsewhere um so and, and that's the nice thing about model it doesn't have to just be my view of the world i can take anybody's view of the world and plug that into the model and uh, work out gold prices that are consistent with those so one of the first things um, you know, that I like to do is look at market consensus. You know, if you take a survey of, uh, of economists and you take the average of, of their opinions, um, that's one way of uh, looking at uh, what could be a so-called consensus view on gold, right? What's the view on gold that's consistent with everybody else's, the average view on, on, on where the economy is going? Um, so if I do that, um, and bearing in mind the consensus expects a Fed pivot, uh, Federal Reserve uh, change in uh, monetary view sort of around uh, the middle of this year. It could be um, as as soon as, you know, this week could be the very last uh, increase in, in interest rates from the uh, Federal Reserve. Um, and then we may see uh you know uh, even potentially rate cuts during the, the the back end of this year um that sort of fed pivot could lead to uh the dollar uh being pretty much topped out and um uh dollar uh, depreciation uh for the rest of this year also uh treasury yields could uh, uh, also be um pretty much close to the end of their um uh, their, their uh increase and if that happens um combined with um, a conservative view of investor sentiment towards gold coming down a little bit from where we are today. So putting in context, today we have uh, speculative positioning, net speculative positioning in gold futures uh, at just over 200,000 uh, contracts net long. If we bring that down to sort of long-term historical average or closer to 100,000 contracts net long, um, putting all of these sort of things into the into my model, I could get a gold price um, that's uh, around two thousand two two thousand two hundred and eighty five by Q one twenty twenty four. 
So um, that's what I call the sort of consensus view on, on, on gold. Now, we can play around with that, uh, as I said. So, you know, what if uh, consensus is wrong? Uh, what if um, the central bank, the major central banks, uh, the Fed included, um, what if their rhetoric um, that they want to kill inflation at, at, at any cost um, is right and they continue to raise interest rates um, until it's undoubtable that uh, that inflation has gone that could potentially um, uh, you know drive uh, economies into recession which would typically be good for gold prices once the recession arrives but you know there would be that period before the recession has been fully induced where inflation could be still you know still lingering there uh, but uh, we could see uh, bond yields uh, rise uh, substantially more uh, and we could see the dollar potentially appreciate more if the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates at a higher um, uh, you know at a higher pace than other central banks um, now, if we see, say, dollar sort of appreciate to say, um, you know, from from where we are right now, so you know, around hundred and the dollar basket at hundred and two to go to say hundred and ten uh, instead of you know depreciating, um, and we see uh, nominal yields on um, on, the, on on treasuries uh, rise to say uh, three uh, three point you know eight uh, eight percent uh, that could uh, drive uh, gold prices um, at the end of that sort of uh, that, that, that uh, exercise, we could see gold prices fall to um, around um, let's get the right number yeah around seventeen thousand uh, dollars per per ounce. Uh, on the flip side, if we were to see the, uh, the the Fed active more decisively, acknowledge the fact that inflation um, may actually be uh, falling a lot faster than uh, what uh, they're currently um, got in their in their models. If you bear in mind the fact that uh, uh, other independent housing uh, indicators like the Case-Shiller uh, numbers look like uh, housing prices in the US are falling a lot faster uh, than what's in the PCE deflator. Also, um, if we you know acknowledge the, if the Fed acknowledges the fact that outright monetary contraction, uh, which we're seeing right now. Is something that could uh, drive, you know, deflationary pressure um, in, in future years. What we may find uh, with, with, you know, with more aggressive cuts at the back end, we could find gold prices rise all the way to 2,500 uh, by Q1 2024. So, a couple of different scenarios there, uh, but uh, I'm sure reality we're somewhere in between. Uh, but at least we can play around with uh, uh, these scenarios as they occur. You've highlighted the important role of central banks in the conversation on gold, but I'm keen to explore that point a bit further. In the past, we have had monetary systems where the supply of money has been linked to how much gold a central bank possesses, also referred to as the gold standard. In today's world, of course, uh, currencies don't quite work that way. The monetary system works on trust rather than convertibility into physical gold. Yet, 
we see that central banks still buy gold and they have been buying record quantities of gold in recent times. So tell us why that is the case. Yeah, that's a great point to raise. Um, yes, gold has had that pseudo uh, monetary um, status uh, for several millennia. And at, at points, it has had a formal monetary status. Uh, these gold standards that you talk about, basically, the idea behind them, uh, the central banks, basically, um, can only issue uh, its own currencies um, if it's backed by gold. And even historically, um, when central banks were operating gold standards, it wasn't the entire monetary base that was backed by gold. It tend to be partially. Um, and then, you know, that's when we think about individual central banks. Um, there were times when you had a system of central banks um, kind of having a currency regime that was um, worked in, uh, uh, you know, with, with association with each other. So like the Bretton Woods, uh, for example, which was a form of a gold standard, but it was only one major central bank, the uh, U.S. Um, central bank, that was backing its monetary base with gold, and then every other country would back its currency uh, with with the dollar. So each, so there's almost a pass through uh, that every other currency is backed with gold, but it, it's sort of through that uh, dollar intermediary. Um, but even then, it was only partially backed. Um, now. Gold doesn't, you know, the Bretton Woods system and gold standards have all gone away into the past. There's no, um, you know, none of those systems anymore. We work in a world of, you know, a fractional reserve banking system where uh, central banks basically create the high-powered money and they can issue uh, currency at their, at their will. Um, but also uh, what we, um, you know, what a lot of countries uh, also acknowledge now is that the currencies that, individual central banks issue uh, there's limitations on that on the usage of those um, and that became really apparent last year when the you know when Russia was put under sanctions um, its ability to use dollars um, and other uh, and other currencies became severely limited now central banks still treat gold as a pseudo currency and they hold uh, stores of gold. Um, and very often the way in which those things are looked at, you know, they're looked at, uh, you know, they're almost accounted for as an alternative to other uh, currencies that they hold on their, on their balance sheets. And you'll see that the big developed world countries, uh, their central banks hold quite a lot of gold in, in, on their balance sheets um, relative to other current, uh, currencies. Um, and they've held them there just through legacy. Uh, a lot of these central banks have actually sold down uh, their their stocks of gold in, in past decades, uh, but still relative to the other FX reserves, they're still quite large. Now, more recently, and I say recently, the past you know uh, decade or so, uh, you've seen developing countries central banks buy more and more gold, and you know increasingly they're putting more gold into their balance sheets that competes with the levels that are held by developed central world banks. And going back to the point that we saw last year, uh, the fact that um, a country can be under sanction 
and therefore can't use uh, or effectively use the currencies of, of other countries easily has meant that a lot more developing world central banks have been looking towards gold, which no other central bank can control um, as, as the alternative. So we saw uh, really strong uh, purchases from, say, the Turkey Central Bank last year. Um, the, uh, the People's Bank of China, um, which hadn't been buying gold for a number of years, or at least hadn't been reporting uh, gold purchases for a number of years, um, last year started to increase its uh, 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 gold purchases. And you know, by November last year, they started reporting uh, purchases once again. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, more recently, we've been seeing, uh, you know, a, a much wider set of countries uh, purchase gold. Even last uh, month, we, so last reporting month, which was uh, month of February, you know, reporting on this a little delayed, we saw the Monetary Authority of Singapore uh, actually uh, buy gold as well. So it's going beyond um, the developing country uh, central banks and monetary authorities that we've seen uh, more recently. Now, one of the reasons behind that is um, central banks are not only responsible for monetary policy, they are very often responsible for uh, financial stability. And when the central banks are producing financial stability reports spanning hundreds of pages, if they're getting a little bit worried about um, the state of the economy and financial stability, um, very often they've been making gold purchases. Uh, that's a nice historic trend that, that we've seen. Um, it's not statistically valid. It doesn't sit in my model, for example. Um, I have tested it. Uh, but anecdotally, you've seen um, some central banks time this very well. Um, so if um, central banks are buying gold at higher volumes, especially developed uh, central banks and monetary authorities, that could be an indication of some of their uh, risks around financial stability becoming a little bit more elevated. Natesh, let's talk uh, a little bit about the idea of a diversified portfolio. Now, most people understand the idea of not putting all your eggs in one basket and that you have to diversify. But of course, you can take that discussion further by understanding what function each investment in your portfolio actually serves. So you've uh, outlined a little bit the, the case for investing in gold, but maybe just uh, tell us uh, a little bit about where gold sits within an investor's portfolio alongside other asset classes. Yeah, so as I briefly mentioned earlier on, gold um, almost has this bipolar behavior. Um, it does extremely well in uh, times of high inflation, which is often coupled with strong economic performance, because inflation is often the you know the byproduct of of a strong economy. When you got you know too much money chasing too few goods, uh, you know as 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 the saying goes, um, that you know when you got too too in those scenarios when you got a lot of monetary impulse, you tend to have strong economic outcomes as well. Uh, but it also does well uh, when the economy is doing badly when you uh, and, and gold acts as that defensive asset. And canvassing um, many different assets, I can't see any other asset that acts in that way. It does so well in both extremes. Most other asset classes have a kind of linear performance, right? Like 
cyclical assets. When the economy is doing well, they do well. And uh, when the economy is performing badly, cyclical assets also perform badly. Um, defensive assets, like say bonds, you know, or you know, especially government bonds, they tend to do well in economic bad times. That's when people flock towards a defensive asset. And then when the economy is performing really well relative to other assets, bonds don't do that well. Gold is in, in an asset class of its own. So therefore, when you're looking to diversify a portfolio, you want to and you want to add in assets that behave differently to others, gold is surely something to look at. Um, now, you know, how much gold should ever go into a portfolio? And that's a, a very difficult um, question to answer. Um, some of our analysis shows it depends on what you're trying to optimize. If you're trying to optimize performance on its own, um, then you could, you know, go through something like, you know, 30% allocation uh, towards gold when sort of optimizing just on the basis of performance. Um, if you're factoring in the, you know, the volatility of gold, so you're taking sort of a balance view on, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, on risk and, uh, you know, and um, uh, performance uh, contributions, maybe that would be a, a little lower. And it kind of really depends on your, you know, volatility tolerance. Um, but if you're looking for, say, sort of 8% sort of volatility uh, acceptance in, in a portfolio, um, you know, even something as, as high as 10% uh, allocation to gold uh, could, could, could work quite well. And, um, you know, it, it's very clear that uh, gold has done well in, um, in, in, in times of stress. And the thing is, we don't, you know, times of stress aren't things that are easy to predict. Um, and that's just in, in, in the nature of things. And if you're using gold as a hedge instrument, so an instrument to hedge against um, economic outcomes, financial outcomes, geopolitical outcomes that you hadn't expected, then it's almost, you know, a, a situation where you got to keep gold. You should keep keeping gold as part of your portfolio all the time. You know, that strategic role for gold, um, it, you know, it, it, it indicates that gold should remain in a portfolio all the time. And um, just looking back at sort of recent examples, you know, the COVID uh, pandemic, for example, Nobody could have predicted uh, that 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 uh, event uh, was going to happen, um, but yet when it did, uh, gold prices performed quite strongly. Um, and like with any insurance asset, um, buying the insurance after the event has occurred uh, probably means the insurance is going to be expensive, right? It's already been priced in at that point. So keeping uh, gold in a portfolio uh, earlier is uh, as a strategic asset is, is something that if, if you're doing long-term uh, portfolio management then that's uh, something that's worth considering and you know you, you there's numerous examples you got the uh, you know the pandemic as i mentioned the ukraine war last year uh, the banking sector turmoil that we saw early, early, you know a few months ago and even you know they, they did this week you know this uh, this past week um, we've seen more stress in the banking sector with first republic bank um now if we're thinking about risks going forward, um, you know, anything could crop up. Um, there's a lot of discussion right now about the debt ceiling in the US, for example. Um, now, we've seen debt ceiling negotiations uh, take place in the, in the past. Uh, very often, uh, the politicians, um, who, it's, up to, you know, it's, it's up to Congress and, and, and uh, to actually raise the debt ceiling, but they all very often take it to brinkmanship. Um, you know, you only get an 11th hour deal. And what if that deal is not struck? 
you know, what if there is um, defaults on some of uh, US's debts? Um, that would be a catastrophic event. Um, and I would imagine gold prices could zoom up very strongly uh, if that were to occur. And obviously, once again, positioning early is the best way to hedge against that risk. So, Nitesh, we've uh, talked at length about uh, the the notion of investing in gold physically, and uh, you've contrasted that with investing in gold futures. One thing we haven't mentioned is the idea of accessing gold through the equity angle, which is if you were to invest in miners of gold. So, would you like to just uh, say a few words contrasting uh, the features of investing in gold miners versus the other ways of accessing gold we've uh, touched on so far? Yeah, um, so gold miners, um, bearing in mind what they're dealing with is pulling gold out the ground and selling it essentially, uh, you know, processing and then selling it. Um, you would imagine to have a strong um uh, relationship with gold and it does you know gold miners have a strong uh, gold miner beta um, uh, but they also have a strong equity market beta as well so you've got other things um, mixed in in, in, in the uh, in, in that investment um, opportunity um, what we tend to find is miners do really well at the early phases of a uh, you know of, of a gold rally um, very often um, these miners are going through a belt tightening process during troughs uh, when market conditions are very difficult. And then when gold prices rise, the end up that they're selling is uh, higher. Therefore, they're padding in a lot more. Mar they, they, you know, therefore, they have a lot more uh, margin power. And therefore, uh, the miners tend to do well uh, in, in those kinds of environments. Over the longer term, uh, we've typically tended to find that gold as the physical gold tends to outperform the miner but if you try to time at different points of the uh equity or uh gold price cycle uh, then you may find uh, there's nice opportunities for investing in miners so natesh as we approach uh, the end of our discussion in this episode uh, i do want to touch a little bit on this notion of esg as it relates to gold now in the world of commodities, it can at times be challenging to create an ESG framework, uh, but it doesn't mean that the conversation isn't evolving. And with gold, certainly the conversation has evolved enough to incorporate this notion of responsible sourcing. So tell us a little bit about the idea of responsibly sourcing physical gold and why it matters. Yeah. I fully agree with you, Mabin. Uh, in the commodity markets, is, you know, the ESG is very difficult because there aren't that much. There's not that much agreement on frameworks, but gold sets itself apart because um, it's a lot of the legwork has been done uh, in in past decades. So, London Bullion Metals Association um, had worked with the uh, OECD to um, uh, to define. Uh, responsible sourcing criteria back in 2012 and you know it's an iterative process every year or every few years uh, these standards have been improved a little on uh, by little um, and um, you know what we did find is in um, 
2019, uh, you know, ESG was formally included in uh, the responsible sourcing criteria uh, from the LPMA. So responsible sourcing has been around since 2012. Uh, 2019, you've got the formal ESG adoption. And then, you know, even since then, uh, we've got come up with, then uh, the LBMA has come up with more uh, criteria that, that strengthens this. Um, and ESG, you know, is multidimensional. There's environmental, social, and governance. Um, a lot of the initial uh, parts of responsible sourcing back in 2012 uh, were really focused about anti-money laundering, those kinds of things. Uh, the formal adoption of ESG in, in 2019 expands on that. Um, there's a lot, I guess, a lot, a lot of emphasis on the social and governance uh, components, um, knowing that sort of various countries where uh, gold is mined in, uh, you know, you know, can uh, do with sort of help from these kind of uh, these, these bodies to elevate the governance and social standards. Um, and increasingly, um, the the standards are looking at environmental uh, criteria. I mean, you know, nasty chemicals had been banned even at the sort of uh, many years ago, but even looking more drilling more deeply into emissions and uh, other chemicals that are used in, in the gold processing uh, is, is becoming increasingly in scope. So, Natasha, as we wrap things up, uh, we've uh, discussed a lot. So this might be the most challenging question uh, of, uh, of the discussion, which would be what would be your single key takeaway uh, that you would want to emphasize as we wrap things up uh, uh, in this discussion? Yeah, I would say that given the gold behaves so different to other asset classes and is a very liquid asset class to access, um, it should be always considered as part of one's portfolio. Excellent. Well, it fascinates me how your cash balance in your bank account is just a number on a screen. Your ownership of shares in companies or funds are numbers on screens, but people still value the idea of, of physical gold, something, something they can touch and feel and won't just disappear in, in the event of uh, any given system breaking down. But uh, thank you so much, Nitesh. Uh, fascinating uh, discussion today. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Commodity Exchange. If you want to hear more from us, please subscribe on whichever platform you're using. You can follow us on Twitter at NiteshaWT and at MubeenTaherWT. And if you want to learn more about commodities, visit Wisdom Tree's website, where we have a wide range of research materials and insights. Until next time.